Alright everyone, let's call a timeout. This podcast is proudly sponsored by the Medical Indemnity Protection Society, the indemnity partner of four out of five healthcare students. It's free to become a student member. For more information regarding MIPS student membership, please visit qr.mips.com.au. Hi everybody, welcome to the timeout. My name's Ganisht and I'm joined today by Dr. Hayden Waterham who is an obstetrician and gynaecologist at St. Vincent's Private, Epworth Freemasons, and the Mercy Hospital for Women. He's also involved in the perinatal ultrasound at the Women's. Another appointment he holds is being a happy and proud dad of four. Today, I have the privilege of being able to talk to him about his life and his lessons. Remember to let us know what you think as well via email, Facebook, or Twitter. Welcome to the show, Hayden, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's start by talking about your specialty. What is involved in obstetrics and gynecology for those people who might not know? Sure. So ONG is a a medical subspecialty that's obviously focused with women's health. Um, It's a very uh, diverse specialty in that people who have fulfilled the training requirements and been granted the title obstetrician and gynecologist um, would have an extremely varied Uh, professional life and extremely varied skills and I mean just to make things a bit simpler I suppose that uh, dealing with pregnancy labor and delivery in the early postpartum period would obviously uh, lend itself to being an obstetrician and then there's a being a gynaecologist as well which um, can range from being an office gynaecologist to being a gynaecological oncologist say a gynaecologist who deals with gynaecological cancers like ovarian cancer or endometrial cancer and that's primarily a surgical subspecialty and those uh, consultants would not spend any time uh, dealing with pregnancy or prenatal screening or labour and delivery Uh, they'd be dealing with cancers and so the specialties just evolved that way rather than the college sort of setting out um, to Uh, have such a diverse range of interest from their obstetrician and gynaecologist population. So it's just how things evolved, basically. But there there is a huge spectrum. Okay. And in your own work, personally, what aspects of of this spectrum are you involved in? So I call myself mainly an obstetrician, which means that I mostly deal with uh, pre-pregnancy, early pregnancy, uh, labour and delivery, and the early... Um, postpartum period for women and their babies Um, but I also do practice gynaecology um, and I perform operations like hysterectomy for example Um, but I'm not a gynaecological oncologist say which is the most surgical end of the spectrum Um, and I also have an interest in ultrasound um, which I have a um, diploma of diagnostic ultrasound which is an additional qualification in in addition to my my Franz Gog. Yeah, and we know we were very interested to get an ONG on the show because of those aspects that you described of you know the mix of surgery and medicine. So your experience is very welcome to our listeners today, Hayden. The other thing I suppose is imaging is become more uh, a more significant feature in an obstetrician gynaecologist's life, and that is the other aspect. So there are 
uh, practitioners now, and it's worth your listeners considering this, there are practitioners now who are obstetrician and gynaecologists, so they've done all of the training program and they have a subspecialty certificate and they solely do women's and babies imaging. And then you say, well, why wouldn't you just be a radiologist? Um, well, it, it, it's also the way that things evolved and the knowledge that you get from going through the training program and then applying that to say an imaging bent um, can still lend itself. So it, it is one of the great things about ONG and I, I strongly encourage your listeners to explore some of those aspects and which ones might be relevant to, to their life because we do need well-informed medical students so we get better ONGs basically. And hopefully after this conversation your email will be flooding with requests. So now we'll move on to some warm-up questions that we like to have on the show. Um, the first being, take us through your day so far. Where did you start? At what time did you start? And how are we here today, right now? Sure. Um, so my day normally starts by being woken up by my sons. Uh, I have identical twin boys who have just turned six. Uh, who wake up before sunrise and they usually come down to my room and where I'm obviously sleeping in, in bed with my wife sound asleep uh, and they'd come and ask me a question about some dinosaur or something they've watched the day before um, about you know what the tropic of cancer is or whatever they've read at school so they're some of the early questions I get then I shuffle out of bed I check my phone is is uh, a shameful acknowledgement of our dependence on technology just to make sure I haven't missed any calls from the labor ward um, overnight. And uh, then I get up and have breakfast. I normally do a ward round uh, to see private patients who I've uh, either just delivered or in hospital for various reasons. And then this morning, for example, I came to do a public hospital uh, clinic, which is at Mercy Hospital for Women, uh, to do an antenatal clinic to see between 15 and 20 pregnant women and guide them through the phases of various phases of pregnancy. And then I normally uh, go back to uh, consulting at St. Vincent's Private where I'm a consultant. And so I have a mixed sort of public and private uh, obstetric and gynecological practice, um, which keeps me busy. And on a day-to-day -day basis, how, at what times would you say would you finish your days? So I normally finish consulting at sort of 5 or 5.30 um, and then uh, depending if there's someone in labour or uh, if there's post-operative patients to be seen, I'd normally just do a quick uh, run around the ward to make sure the patients are happy and check with the nurses and midwives to make sure they're happy with how things are going. Um, and then I'd usually head home, basically. My children, I've got four children, um, they're all at school at the moment. Uh, so I'd normally see them before they go to bed and then yeah. try and be involved in, in uh, doing readers and um, sight words and spelling quizzes and then try to get my sons to bed early because when they're in bed the house seems to settle down a little bit um, and then my daughters, uh, one in grade six, one in grade three, uh, we normally have a chat. Um, watch some TV together, read something, just have a general chat. And then my wife and I usually try and catch up on our days uh, before we go to bed um, by having a cup of tea, which is what we our sort of ritual, which is a good thing to do, I think. And then just wait. Sometimes you get called. Sometimes I've got to go to see a labouring woman. Sometimes I've got to go help a colleague out. Uh, sometimes the ward calls, sometimes the patient's sick, sometimes my call service rings. So I do have an unpredictable life. Uh, and it, it is hard to, it can be hard, uh, to, it's a privilege, but it can be hard to uh, switch off sometimes when your phone's always on. 
and to really expect a call basically and not get too upset about that. Um, I've realized if you just sort of go with the flow, it makes your life a lot easier. It is one of the things I was very keen to talk to you about in terms of the challenges of being in a specialty that does require you to be on call um, for most of the time. I know we will get to that a bit later. You mentioned in terms of you know the other aspects of your life that you do find some time to read things, listen to things. Are you listening to or reading anything at the moment that you'd like to share with us? Um, my reading is uh, predictable in that Every weekend, my wife and I buy all of the newspapers and we're probably one of the few people who actually buys the newspapers because every time I sort of trundle down to the 7-Eleven, there's an enormous pile in the morning and there's still an enormous pile in the afternoon. So I'm probably one of the few people that actually buys the newspapers and I buy it across the entire political spectrum. Uh, and I put them on our kitchen table um, where we eat and congregate as a family and throughout the week, I just mosey through them. By the end of the week, I've usually read the Financial Review and The Age and The Guardian and all of them almost cover to cover. And I do like doing that. And I tend to, I've realised over time that I tend to like magazines and newspapers more than I do novels. And my wife reads a lot of novels, but I tend to always lean towards magazine and magazine articles, including some medical things. Well, I think those two choices of your wife and yourself would complement each other, you would think. She would tell you about the novels, you would tell her about all the news around. That's right, yeah. I, I, I'm, I don't mind a biography um, of characters I'm interested in. And I try to read people I don't, or think I won't agree with, because I'm conscious of the fact that uh, reading people's autobiographies actually, if they're truthful, and most people are in their autobiography, um, it does give you a different perspective maybe than what you thought. If I, if I pick up a book, it would usually be something like that rather than, say, a crime novel. I absolutely see that. And this actually leads to the next question of which historical figure, alive or dead, would you love to sit down and have a chat with and why? There are people in my life at the moment who I probably haven't done as well as I could have to uh, sit down with them. So my grandparents, for example, like my Orpa, I've got Dutch heritage, so I have an Orpa and Norma, who migrated and spent time in the Second World War and then started a new life in Australia and had some personal tragedy along the way. Like there are people in my own life um, who I, um, whose opinion I value more than, uh, say, someone I'd read in a book. Um, there are some uh, historical figures uh, who, whose lives have become very interesting to me and people like... Uh, I, I do like American history because um, I'm interested in how America evolved as a country and, say, what it's become, which is quite topical because of Donald Trump, but... It's not, it, it, there is something about the American story and the rise to prominence in the last couple of hundred years um, that I think is very interesting. And those figures are Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson. And the biographies of Thomas Jefferson are fascinating um, because he seems to hold, he seems to hold views uh, about society and about society, what society could be, but then he also had some personal failings as well. 
And I think sometimes we get caught up in people's personal failings and not focusing enough on their bigger ideals. Because if you use people's personal character, you can get lost in what they truly believe in. So, and Lincoln, because he held the nation together and the American Civil War sounded horrible. And as bad as America might look from the outside now, I mean, being alive in 1862 or 1864 uh, at the height of the Civil War in America was would have been horrible. And to actually hold it together and then ultimately pay the, the price uh, with his own life, I think is fascinating. And all the, all the modern American leaders keep referencing Lincoln well the good ones do anyway so um, Lincoln's a character who's been fascinating to me and Jefferson yeah and one can only imagine what it would be like to maybe have a chance like this just talk to them about whatever you wanted to know now for the last of these questions in terms of a warm-up if there were a profession outside of your specialty that you could try what do you think it would be and why look I was I was always I think I decided quite early that I would probably have a procedural-based specialty, and I thought I, th- I think that's because I enjoyed um, I enjoyed being in theatre. I like working with my hands, and I've always seen myself as quite a practical person. And I probably would have I was interested in surgery, obviously for obvious reasons, but I, I really enjoyed ICU. And the intensive care unit uh, had some fun procedures to do, like we used to float swans and put lots of bass cats in and, you know, do intubations, that sort of thing. But it also had a, had a huge variation in medical and surgical problems. Um, and I liked the acuity as well. And because I enjoyed anatomy and physiology and those sorts of subjects, I, I probably um, would say ICU to be an intensivist. And I did... Uh, a criti- well, I did a lot of critical care um, in my third year out. This is the point of the interview where we do start talking about your life sure. in a bit more detail. Now, we will take a jump into the past, Hayden, sure. and talk a little bit about your childhood at the start. Where were you born and where did you grow up? Yeah, so I was born in the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne, um, in like near Warrandyte basically which is sort of a you know it's changed a bit it was a bit of a hippie sort of you know next to the Yarra River there singing Kumbaya Um, but it's not really like that anymore Um, it was a great place to grow up because we spent a lot of time outside Um, both my parents uh, were born in Netherlands Uh, they're both Dutch and they came to Australia at different times met in Australia but uh, started a decided to stay and start their family here and as a child and a teenager growing up in Australia I suppose um, what do you think influenced you to this day Um, my family played a huge influence my dad uh, was very is uh, very hard working um, and he spent a lot of time overseas uh, working when I was young Um, trying to get a business up and going. And my mum played a traditional role at home with myself and my two sisters and really um, did most of the sort of parental day-to-day running of the household sort of things. And my family wouldn't have been as... would not have been as good if each of them did not take on that specific role. So my dad, uh, his work life balance was probably poor in that he worked a lot and didn't have much life and similarly to my mum but together they were a formidable team 
Um, and I have no, I had a very happy childhood um, because of that. And it was really the sacrifice of both my parents. And I'm sure your, your listeners would agree that people, what happens to you when you're young plays a significant uh, input in where you end up. And there's lots, I think there's a higher proportion of children to migrant parents in medical school. And I think that's because uh, of how, what, where people find their work ethic. And I think, I think a bit of that's inherited, to be honest. I think that migrants do tend to work harder. And I think the opportunity that you get to work in a country like Australia means that you can't see why you wouldn't want to do it. And I did not have a privileged upbringing at all. I've become more privileged. Um, and I do worry about what I'm doing to my own children. But um, it is different when you grow up with no money and you see your parents work really hard and then they end up being successful. Changes how you live your life and where you put value yeah i can relate to that quite a bit myself um, but it does make you think whether the drive of coming in a new place where you have to prove yourself essentially is the thing that sets you up um, to succeed later on in life and perhaps uh, there have been many guests before who have hinted at their upbringing that has played such a significant role in how they perceive things and how they approach people and so I tend to agree that it would play such a um, such a big role as well. But back then, with that work ethic that you describe, was there any indication that you'd get into medicine as a child or a teenager? Not really. I, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to be um, when I was at, say, high school. And I, I, I was always interested in the human body, basically and even anatomy and physiology like i always enjoyed subjects like biology um, and even some aspects of psychology and i thought that that was that that's where my interest was because i had opportunities to pursue those at any length like however i wanted it made it easier to think about doing medicine i went to uh, monash university um, for a while and i tried a few different things i even enrolled in law degree um, and I went for two weeks um, and I couldn't cope with the reading list and I was bored. I thought this is horrible and I need to find a, something else to do. So it, it is, it's good, I think it's good for younger people, like when I say younger, like high school students, to really explore a few different things. And you don't want to rush into a career choice when you're so young because most people now have a few different careers. And I feel sorry for people who... Uh, have their heart set on one uh, career prospect at the expense of all else because I, I do think there is merit in at least exploring those you don't want to you don't medicine doesn't lend itself just to endless wandering around the sort of intellectual circles of a university because you do have to commit at some stage but I think that that is that is best done in say a person's midlife maybe in their 20s um, because you need time to develop as a doctor and at some stage most doctors would agree that to be successful in medicine you have to commit to something at some stage but if you do it too early you might make the wrong choice and if you do it too late you may never get anywhere yeah hence I suppose why there are many advocates of this postgraduate model of medicine yeah. which I know we've spoken about in the past is you see the people coming out as more well-rounded I do I think I think overall it's a good thing I think that the downside to it is you might be a bit older and you might feel compelled to choose a specialty before you're actually ready 
And I think that that's one of the downsides, but people who have maybe explored other avenues in education may be more determined and may be more knowledgeable about where they want to be. So I do, I think the maturity of the students is better. Uh, I think the career prospects of being happy in your job, um, which is very important, um, would be would be increased in in a postgraduate model of medicine. The the issue is is then does it just become like everyone does a bit of science first and then ends up in medicine, whereas they could have just done medicine to start with, or do you really get people who maybe? Uh, did linguistics or architecture or something else and they really do bring something new to the table because the bottom line is you do have to learn a bit about biology and chemistry and and anatomy and and it is easier if you have a grounding in the sciences but i think the profession's the richer for having more arts and even creative arts students come through now it's interesting whether or not they what specialties if any, they end up that sort of student. And I've never seen any data on that, but I would be very interested to know how that actually pans out. I know. You wonder where would they find the avenue to express their creativity or whatever background they bring into That's right. And, and if they all turn out to be great surgeons, maybe that's the cohort we should look to who become the great surgeons. I mean, if there are people in the creative arts or in the fine arts who end up being the best plastic surgeons then we need to go to the fine art schools and poach them so we get the best surgeons. But if they're coming from, you know, anatomy and physiology and biochemistry undergraduates, then maybe the graduate program isn't what it was meant to be. Yeah, I see that point. You, you introduce the program to have a different skill set, but at the end of the day, if you're cookie-cuttering everyone, then, you know, That's was right. that the, the intended purpose? That's right. And you've got to ask, the, the, the hospitals the colleges and the universities need to have an idea about what they actually want out of the students. Um, you know, if, if, the, if they weren't happy with the undergraduate model, they need to say why they weren't happy. And then we, we've got something to work with. Whereas I'm not sure that just saying an alternative is gonna be better, um, whether that's actually true or not, I don't know. Yeah. Now, to come to your own education, from what we've gathered, you graduated with honours in medicine and surgery from University of Sydney in 2006. Um, what was the experience over there like for you? It was really good. I, I, I could have gone to Melbourne um, and I chose to go to Sydney because um, it was a time in my life that I uh, wanted to just, you know, live in a new city and I didn't have any sort of significant personal attachments and it was just seemed like a good thing to do and i didn't know anyone when i started medical school which was great it was yeah. sort of starting over a, you know turning over a new leaf and um i had a wonderful time to be honest i i, I just i look back at my time at uni and i i was unbelievably happy i, it, I was social i really enjoyed the work and i did study hard um, because I, I do enjoy reading and I do enjoy the study. Like I never thought it was really a burden. I, I liked sitting down and I liked opening textbooks. I liked Last's Anatomy and I liked medical physiology and I, I really did. And I, it wasn't, it was never something I thought, oh shit, I've got to study. Like I, I, I honestly liked it. And then to have other people around me who also liked it made me feel almost normal. So it was, I had a fantastic time. I had a really great time. My, I met my 
now wife in first year and we hit it off fine and it was great like we just used to hang out and study and you know it was great had a great time now take us through your mindset as a medical student what were what were your dreams goals and ambitions back then um i didn't really have any i i i was when i look back now it's probably more idealistic then than i am now um and i may have become more cynical with age which i am ashamed to admit but I am telling the truth when I say that. I really I really thought that medicine, and I do still think this, I, I thought that medicine could offer a lot to, um, offer the most to poor and underprivileged people. And I, 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 I wasn't the full medicine, some frontier type, um, but I did, uh, like we did, for example, choose, uh, my wife and I went to Southern Africa for our medical elective to Swaziland and South Africa. And I really, enjoyed that feeling of giving back to the population but also learning something and i don't want to sound trite when i say that like i do there there is a part of me um that that still thinks that that is true but it hasn't been my lived experience um as i've gotten older and i've been a consultant now for a a while i did i was probably more idealistic when i was a medical student and which i think is a good thing because it does help you um, start off from a grounding that you do really want to serve the community. The, the, the public's put a lot of trust in medical students and invested a lot of time and money. And I think it's good that medical students feel like that the job is to serve the, the needy, the sick, the poor. Um, I think that's a good thing. Let's talk a little bit over here about the vices and the virtues of the modern day medical student. Um, what do you think we should be doing more of or less of? I think it's. I think you should be doing more of getting to know um, specialists who work in specialties that you might be interested in, because I think that it's the only way you can really judge about who you might become. There are common personality traits in different specialties, and they're varied. And if you find your tribe or your group or a mentor who is the way that you think you are or is the way that you think you want to be, it can give you some career direction. And it doesn't have to be every aspect of their personality. It doesn't have to be their gender or their age or their personal life. Um, but there's, there are common threads in the personality traits of different specialties and in a specialty like ONG where you could be doing imaging or you could do gynecology or you could do obstetrics um, that is quite wide um, in that there are personality traits who may be a better with sleep deprivation who can maybe cope with grief and loss or anguish um, who can maybe deal with the um, sometimes conflicting um, issues that arise in in reproductive issues um, that does lend itself to a certain personality. And so I think medical students now, they are better at exploring all of the aspects of the specialties. Um, it used to be, you know, if you were good at anatomy and you could put, you know, a few things together, you probably should be a surgeon. If you were constantly perplexed by the human mind, maybe you should do psychiatry. Um, and there are, it, it was a bit simplistic back then and I, I I do still feel that there are consultants who are maybe sort of 20 years older than me who I look at now and I still think you you probably did this for the wrong reason. And 
I think that the benefit of younger medical students is they're less likely to make that mistake. Because um, something else you did teach me when we were together was this notion that the medical student has to sit down and think long and hard about certain ethical situations that they might find themselves in. Um, you spoke of it at the time as building their own conviction to be able to communicate it to someone else. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? I don't think that a student doctor or a medical student should ever be railroaded into being something or someone that they're not. Um, I think you've got to know yourself first and you've got to go through the hard intellectual yards with yourself um, about finding out who you actually are and what you believe. And I think people who are confident in what they believe, I'm not fussed about what it is. I'm not fussed about what their opinion is. I care most about the fact that they've been through the issues themselves and ONG, um, I found myself going through it in ONG often when the issue presents itself. And they may be issues related to reproductive autonomy. Um, they may be related to resuscitation of extremely premature infants. Uh, they may be related to uh, abortion and contraception. And I'm, I'm not fussed about what people, the conclusions that people come to, as long as they've been through the rigors of seeing the other side. Um, because it helps you work out who you actually are and what you believe. And I think the more that you know about that when you're a medical student, the more likely you are to have a rich and fulfilling life. And I, I, I've, I've all, I always say to people, look, you don't really want to change too much of your baseline personality because you've got to live with yourself. And if, if, the patient, if you believe yourself, the patients will believe you as well. Um, and I have been accused of maybe being a bit too honest at times, much to the chagrin of my you know, contemporaries, but it is something that I think is really important. And if I have to be too honest, just to make it blatantly obvious that I'm, I'm, I'm saying what I think the truth is, then I think that's important. Because those lessons were realized at that time, I think we might be influenced into thinking we need to be like that person who's giving us the advice. You just don't. You, you've got to, You've got to justify your own position in life and you've got to go through the hard yards, like I said, of what somebody else might believe and how they came to that conclusion. And it doesn't mean that everybody's always right. It means that sometimes in medicine, there's the right and the wrong thing to do for that individual. Because if we can't see it in ourselves as professionals, how can we see it in our patients? in a patient who has an advanced malignancy who simply doesn't want to have chemotherapy or neoadjuvant treatment or surgery, who would rather buy a few bottles of Bollinger and go and sit on the beach. It is, to be able to see things from another point of view in medicine is very important. We need to be making the most of the experiences outside of medicine and surgery. Um, talking to people really in different circles, trying to understand their perspective do you feel that's something we do enough of? I, I think that the modern medical student is better at that than medical students generations ago. I think that the professional bodies, the hospitals, um, people's professors sort of set the standard of what they expected and everyone just came out being able to deliver a service. And I think now that the modern medical student is more likely to be able to go through those issues themselves. And I like hearing the opinions of medical students. And my favorite question 
um, to medical students is to tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me why I said what I said. Tell me why you think that was wrong because you need, you need to give medical students the courage to be able to challenge advice and it doesn't have to be in a mean way or a pejorative way. It's really in the interest of open discussion and it's not sort of wandering around in the intellectual countryside for the rest of your life without ever committing to something because ultimately you do have to commit to stuff as a doctor. You have to offer the surgery. You have to write up the chemotherapy. You have to perform the surgical termination of pregnancy if that's what's required or you don't. And you have to go through that to start with and nothing makes you go through that like ONG training, I'll tell you what. You did mention that favorite question of yours. I can tell the listeners that can be intimidating to look at Hayden and answer him that question. But at the same time, you would be a perfect role model for those for that lesson that you want to preach to the listeners. Yeah, you've got to. It, it's important, and there there are ways to do it. Some people are offended by that, particularly in groups. Like, there are senior doctors who just hate having their their authority challenged, yeah. and it can go down sideways. Um, but but I, I really don't know any senior doctors who would who would scold an individual or mark them down if you went up to them and said, look, I really didn't understand um, how that came to pass or how you came to that decision or how you made that recommendation. Because from my point of view, I saw it as A, B and C. Um, am I wrong or do I need to change my mind? Like leaving the question open, am I wrong or tell me why I'm wrong or am I being ridiculous? leaves the conversation open and i think that was that's been a really helpful uh it's been a really helpful uh intellectual pathway for me if i'm struggling and i'm not quite sure about where i'm going or whether i'm making the right decision it happens often in pregnancy um, about when to deliver a baby or if to deliver one at all or the mode of birth and vaginal versus caesar or reproductive screening or pre-implantation genetic diagnosis a lot of these a lot of these harder ethical issues in ong do lend itself to having to listen to other people's opinions you, you can change your own of course um, but you've got to go through the intellectual rigor to, to come to your conclusion something that some listeners and even myself uh, it's very refreshing to hear that in a sea of trying to you know just do the right thing get in that race make sure you don't upset or rub yourself against anything that could be dangerous for yourself. Yeah, there are times where you think that the obvious thing to do is to do A, B and C, and that probably is the right thing to do, or the, the profession's always done X, Y and Z. Like you do have to take um, the, the lessons of history um, and use them to your advantage as well. You can't run a, a a random double-blinded placebo-controlled randomized trial for every single question in medicine you do have to use biological plausibility and you do have to use common sense and you do always have to be able to justify your position and your patients help you do that over time it is a sign of a maturing doctor to be able to do that now to wrap up our discussion about your medical school days and you mentioned an elective somewhere in there i thought i could not deprive the listeners of the infamous goat story um can you remind us where you did your elective what it was about and can you tell us about the goat story hayden 
Sure. Um, so I was in a hospital in Southern Africa, and there's it was it was completely chaotic. Um, it was a poorly administered hospital, and the supplies were terrible, and there was there was a significant burden of HIV and opportunistic infections, uh, particularly fungal infections, and uh, people would pre- present with advanced malignancy. And there was a very overworked doctor um, who had done everything they could to keep the hospital going. And um, eventually this doctor um, was just fed up and there, this led to the goat story. And this is, this is God's honest truth. This, this, I witnessed this with my own eyes and I can still remember it like it was yesterday. So involved was my amygdala. There was always complaints about animals being in the wards. And when I say animals, there were obviously goats and there were, there were cows. Um, these are wandering up and down the wards um, in the hospital because a lot of the, uh, a lot of the community members at that, in that area had large herds of coats, goats and cattle. And they just graze in the hospital yards and they get stuck into the supplies and drink all the sterile water. The the most senior doctor there was absolutely fed up one day about the goats being in the ward. And he he said, no more goats. And he used a few expletives in there, which I won't offend your listeners with. And he he said, no more effing goats. And... uh, he they goats kept coming in and by the afternoon he he picked up a goat and he he strangled the goat uh on the steps of the hospital um like in a like 1980s wrestling movie and the goat fell limp in his arms and he grabbed it by the horns it had obviously asphyxiated and it, it was limp in his arms and he grabbed it by the horns and he did like around his head in a big circular motion and it flung like a helicopter um, across the yard and landed limp with a thud and people's eyes were wide and my eyes were wide and he said to everyone, maybe 50, 100 people standing around, no more goats in the hospital. And everyone picked up their staff and their rod um, and herded their animals off the hospital grounds, and the goat lied there limp as the sacrificial offering to no more goats in the hospital. And I still remember that. And I looked at the doctor, whose name I remember, but I won't mention in case he's still with us. Uh, I still remember, and I thought, look, he's probably a bit overworked, and maybe he needs to see a psychologist, and maybe he needs a holiday. And I thought that this is what happens at the end of your tether. So no more goats in the hospital. What a vivid um, image you would have had as a medical student. Now, to move on to what happened after medical school, you completed your resident training at Royal Melbourne Hospital, the Western Wangaratta Base Hospital, before starting formal ONG training at the Mercy. Your advanced training was then at the Royal Women's with this um, focus on high-risk pregnancies, ultrasound and laparoscopic surgery. Can you tell us how long did that training take? Was that a typical pathway for you? Um, it was pretty typical at the time. So I did intern uh, and then two resident years. In those resident years, I did a few different things and I thought either I'm gonna do surgery, ICU or ONG. And then I wasn't really convinced by surgery, uh, to be honest. I thought, look, I probably would end up being a surgeon. Um, and then I just couldn't find 
the group in surgery that I was going to continue with. And that wasn't a criticism of people's personalities. I just didn't, I just thought, oh, maybe this is not quite right. Um, and I really enjoyed being in theatre and I loved the practical aspects and I liked a bit of medicine, but not too much. And then I thought, oh, look, maybe I should do ONG, but I was honestly scared about doing ONG. I didn't have, I had an okay experience as a medical student, not because there was anything wrong with the clinical school, but I probably just didn't devote as much time and effort as I should have at that time. And then I thought, oh, look, I, I might just see if I can work for six months in ONG. I'll just get a six month job and if I like it, great. And if not, I'll just continue on and go and find something else. And so that was basically the pathway for me. I had to experience it first. When I did six months, I did it at the Mercy and I had a great time and I loved it. And the midwives were great to me. There was senior midwives uh, on the labor ward. And I remember just sort of turning up at night and it was way less structured than it is now. And the midwives were great to me and I learned a lot and I really enjoyed it. And I thought, look, actually I might do this. And then I applied and it was a lot easier to get onto training programs then. And I am in, there is no doubt in my mind um, that it is harder now for medical students than it used to be in the early 2000s. It is just, it is just harder now for you guys. And um, because if you wanted to start a program then, you basically had to be pretty good um, and have a reasonable CV, but there were no points or extracurricular activities that were mandatory or personality types or scores or whatever. It was really, you did the job on the unit that you hoped to get a training job in and you met the professors and the senior consultants and they said, look, he seems like, I know, I know this is what they said about me because they told me he seems trainable, right? He doesn't have to be perfect now. Um, he seems like a trainable person. He doesn't have a criminal record. He, do you know what I mean? Like it, it was just really that the hospital that you worked at would select you for the training program so that they knew what they were getting themselves into because they'd already seen you for you know six months or a year. So there was no surprises. You didn't have to learn people's names. You didn't have to get new logins. They weren't sending you somewhere else. They were saying, look, we know you, you know us. This is what we expect of you in the training program. Are you up for it? And the answer was yes and yes and yes. So it was, it was easier back then, but the volume of students was less. Um, the hospitals probably had a bit more autonomy over the colleges, so the hospitals could choose. And then they'd just devise the colleges and say, look, we're going to take this person, this person. And it was all just a bit, you know, you did have an interview, but it wasn't as rigorous. I didn't find it as rigorous as it is now. I think I put in my like one page CV and they said, yeah, fine. It, and it is, it's harder for you guys. It just is. Um, I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't know how better to select people. And you mentioned uh, the point about the volume of students. It is undeniable that there are so many more now, but it also appears, and so one would hope that by raising the standard, you're able to select those people who are very committed to it. But at the same time, um, the perception is that you almost have to prove that you have worked in the job to be able to work in the job. So it, the hurdles do seem to be getting a bit higher. They are, and they're getting higher because the expectations are more. But I always ask myself the question, are the doctors who come out now, are they better than the ones who came out 20 years ago? And I'm not sure about that. Um, and because I'm not sure about that, I think it's fair to question um, the way that 
students are selected for training programs. Um, the more students you put through medical school, the more rigorous you have to be. The, the hurdle used to be getting into medical school. And if you got into medical school and you passed and you could get a job in a specialty that you thought you were interested in, you, you could pretty much start the specialty. And now the, her, now the mentality is let's just put heaps of people through medical school and then we'll sort them out at the end because we know they're going to work hard. We know they're type A personalities, most of them. Um, we know that it allows the hospitals to be able to pick and choose who they want. But I'm interested in what people are like when they finish, you know, because that's the ultimate goal. You've got to train good specialists to serve the public you know, to perform the operations, to do the ward rounds, to keep people alive, to give them a better quality of life. If we're getting better at that, then so be it. But I don't, I'm not sure in the last 20 years that that is better. That is better. So that is worth reflecting. That's the hospitals and the colleges reflecting on that and saying, are the people they put through now better or worse than 20 years ago? And then you make the decision on what to fix up and what not to. And to come back to your own training in those days, um, what would you say are some of the challenges you would have faced? Oh, it was just work hours. It was hours on the job. Now, that like hours on labour ward, um, you know, we, we, we worked, say, every second weekend, um, like 14 hours both days. And then you just sort of turn up on Monday or you do like a week in a row of nights and then sort of just come back and have a day off and come back. And the work hours now are less than they used to be. And there's certainly some merit into, into, doing, into reducing the work hours, to giving people work-life balance, understanding that the cohort of people who go through now are a bit older, they may have family commitments, uh, there may be pregnancies uh, or caring for young children. And you don't want to dismiss those issues as well. Um, whereas... Whereas the work hours that were early on in my career were significant. And the, the upside to that was, well, you got really good training. You got high volume training um, because you're there all the time. But, you know, I didn't have a family at that time. I had a girlfriend uh, who's now my wife. Um, and we just, we just sort of went to work and then we just sort of came home and then we went back to work again and we just did that for years on end. And, you know, you got like... I got, we got married um, when I was a intern or resident and um, I couldn't even get time off for a honeymoon. I had to go into the like medical directors and say, listen, can I just have a week off? My wife's going to leave me before even married unless I can get a honeymoon. And like, I remember having to like beg, borrow, cheat and steal to actually get holidays off for a honeymoon because they just said, no, you got to work. And it was is just different now. I don't think it was better back then. I do think the volume of work was more efficient, um, but I'm not sure that it was better. Because this next point um, is is something that many people are feeling. Any aspiring surgeon or current surgeon is thinking about, you know, how to balance family, work-life balance. I mean, Hayden, you're now a proud and hardworking dad of four alongside your wife. Um, but what was your own take on this back then? Was there, you know, the considerations of a family in your mind? Um, sure, we, we were always going to have a family and it was just a matter of trying to work out where that that was going to fit into both of our lives. So my wife's a paediatrician 
Um, and it took her a long time, um, longer than average, to get through uh, being a registrar because, um, you know, she was we were pregnant and she was either you know just had a baby and caring for a newborn uh, pregnant again trying to do the physician's exams like it is it is different um and that is a real burden that 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 a lot of trainees have to face and you can't dismiss that um because we dismiss it at our peril because if we exclude people who are striving for a work-life balance or just need a bit more time at that phase of their life, then the community will not benefit from having 100% dedicated doctors who all they do is go to work. The community needs to be cared for by people who have a lived experience of trying to manage work and life. And it, it, it can be a good thing. Now, it does lengthen training because you just can't fit all the training in. It may be harder to pass the exams, but you don't want to decrease the standard. I mean, these are real issues. And if if it took six years to train an obstetrician and gynecologist working 60 hours a week, then does it take 18 years to train someone working 30 hours a week? Do you know what I mean? Like there is, we need better answers from both the trainees, from medical students and from consultants about how to get around this issue. And, and to say just work less and, and then not acknowledging that there's a downside to that is also disingenuous. Um, so I encourage your listeners, um, if they have issues like this, you've got to help present solutions. You've got to say that um, we want to do this with our work-life balance, but we know that uh, we may not be able to work as much, but we can make it up with simulation training or we can make it up with more efficient work practices or we can make it up with more stringent logbook reflections. Like there needs to be um, solutions if you're going to say that let's all just work less and go to the beach more, but then not expect the population to be as well served by doctors who are well trained. It's a real issue. Oh, it is. And yeah. all those considerations are forming part of the discussion around flexible training, yes. that um, there is a push to have that available, not just for people considering families, but who might be involved in high level sports or just have multiple different commitments that they have to serve. So I think all of the points you mentioned do factor into that. Now, there were a couple of other issues that I was keen to get your perspective on, Hayden, because there is an ongoing and appropriately pertinent issue in the world of surgery in that there are not enough women in surgery. However, very interestingly, you happen to be a male working in an environment where there are mostly women around you. So what do you think the rest of the surgical world can learn about this? Sure. Um, my view generally about gender in the workplace is that you want to make someone's gender uh, as of little relevance as you can in that the community uh, trainees, colleges and universities need to get together and say what they really want out of their trainees. and. What they want is competent doctors to be able to deliver a service to the community and for that individual to have a quality of life. My general view about that is that the only way that you can do that and do it fairly is you've got to give everyone opportunity to be able to succeed. 
but I am generally against something like quotas, for example. Mm-hmm. And quotas would quotas would probably benefit me um, because I'm in the minority in ONGs. So most of my colleagues are female. Um, most of the new trainees are female. If there was ever a consultant job or a board position or whatever, I would probably be favoured by quotas because most of my contemporaries are female. But I still think it's a bad idea. And I think it's a bad idea because what if someone would do a better job than me and they didn't get the job just because they were a woman? Like, I think that's the wrong thing to do. Um, I think that... In the trainee years, it's really the burden of reproduction. It's pregnancy, having a baby and having a young family that can make it harder for women. And I've seen this in my own wife who we've had, we have four children um, and it took, her a long, it took her longer to get through paediatric training than it did for me to get through ONG because I could work when she was heavily pregnant and she couldn't. Um, and I could work when we had, you know, two months old or three month olds um so that needs to be taken into consideration but i i don't want to see i don't want to see people discriminated against because of their gender or their color or their age or i I think that we just need to be better at, at accommodating people who have a strong desire to get to the end goal that we all agree on and the end goal is being a competent person who can serve the community um, and even if it takes them a bit longer, well, so be it. You can't you can't take away that opportunity, um, but you can't give it to someone else who is less deserving because they because they're male or because they're female or because it, I just I think that's the road to nowhere. I think that 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 leads to more trouble, in my view. And I think that I think that as we've opened up ONG and more women have wanted to do ONG, I think, so what? I think that's great. Because if they're the people that actually want to do it, then that's fine. And if 100% of them were female, and we could choose 100, and all 100 were female, but they were the best people to do the job, then I don't think we should encourage more blokes. I, I think that if, but I also think the same for surgery. I think that if all the best surgeons um, happen to be a certain personality type or a certain gender, male or female, well, so be it. It's more what happens when you're in the training program. And I think that that's where we get lost a bit. I think we don't acknowledge the hardship that some trainees have in surgery or ONG with pregnancy loss or miscarriage or a difficult pregnancy or a newborn that's really hard. Um, or mastitis or all these things that come up all the time like we need to be better at being more forgiving without compromising the standard that we expect from our trainees but i'm generally not for quotas for those reasons yeah and you've outlined you know it being a challenge even though the intention behind it is to solve that problem um, but another another challenge that people also face is discrimination and harassment. Now, as a consultant at the peak of the profession, do you feel that's your place to fight discrimination and harassment? And what do you do about it? I do. I, I think I think that discrimination and harassment has become more of an issue because 
we've done such a poor job in dealing with it in the past. And I think that giving people a voice to be able to air their grievances or their concerns is really important. I think that there are some issues in medicine that are better dealt with within the medical profession. And then I think that there are others who are better dealt with at arm's length with independent uh, oversight. Because doctors in hospitals are quite powerful. And like all power in all cases, it can be used for evil. And you don't want that to be the case. We need to, as a profession, be, be able to understand our own weaknesses and sweeping things under the carpet and not acknowledging our past failures is no path to the future. Yeah. And like I said, there are times when you can settle discrimination and harassment or differences of opinion with a conversation. And there are other times where it's completely inappropriate to ever bring up those issues with a potential perpetrator, ever. Having due process, um, having independent oversight in people who understand the profession and acknowledge the strengths and failures of our profession um, is very important because nobody wants to work in a job where they feel like um, there's some aspect of their personality, their gender or their skin or their sexual orientation or any of those things Nobody, nobody wants to feel like that is all they are or yeah. all they're ever going to be because all of us, all of us are, have differences of personality or opinion and, or of gender or skin colour. And nobody wants to see that aspect in sole focus because all of us are the sum of more than just our little parts. So we've got a long way to go with that. And the balance is between independent oversight and stuff that can be sorted out within the profession that can be dealt with fairly. Because as a profession, and medical students, whether they think it or not, they are actually part of the profession. They often feel like they're medical students. We, could, we should call them student doctors because they are the profession. They're the future of the profession. And if they're not involved, we're going nowhere. But the leadership, the leadership need to convince the medical students that they've got this because caesar's got to make you a believer like and that's where the leadership comes from and if caesar doesn't make believers then caesar shouldn't be there i like that thought a lot um and so to attribute that power to the medical students or young trainees as you're saying and to those people who might be facing cases of discrimination and harassment what would you advise them to do the, the the main thing is that they feel like they genuinely feel like they've had a chance to be able to speak about their experience in a truthful manner and if you don't give students or junior doctors or even consultants because it's not real it's not always about power like it's not always about a medical student and a consultant or an intern and a consultant it's sometimes against a consultant and a consultant and that can be harder to appreciate for a medical student population but you've got to give people the chance to be able to tell their story you don't have to make a moral judgment or you don't have to send everything off to court, or you don't have to send everything off to a tribunal or an independent inquiry. 
but you do need a way that people feel like they can talk about their experience and then the judgment of that experience should be left to my view is it should be left to groups of people so it should be left to where, where there's a number of people on say a committee or a panel and then they can go through these things now it's hard if the committee members are also in control of the profession that's hard um, there also needs to be an avenue for for independent oversight of those committees as well now you don't want it to just turn into this massive you know bureaucratic spaghetti where you know there's levers everywhere you you do you do need people to be honest about what their role is and and what they hope to achieve in that role you do want to spread the power out a bit but putting the power in the right people's hands the worst thing you can do is you can have people who genuinely experience discrimination or harassment they experience it it's true but they've got nowhere to go that is the worst outcome and that we need to get that that just needs to be unacceptable that needs to be agreed unanimously amongst medical students junior doctors consultants universities hospitals that having nowhere to go is not good enough now we totally see that and we appreciate that you as a consultant and hopefully surrounded by colleagues who do think the same are in a position where you can help us as well um, in that role so thanks a lot for those views. Now, before we move to some reflection questions at the end of today, I was really keen to discuss some of your current work as well. Um, so although it would be a few years before uh, medical students and junior doctors are considering that, you're currently involved in the thrills, trials and tribulations of private practice. So we're possibly not thinking about that yet, but what can we learn from your journey if ever that is something on our radar? It's good to think when you're a medical student about where you think you might like to work because medical students, their experience is skewed to hospitals, uh, particularly public hospitals. It's hard for you to see, um, it's hard for medical students to get a good idea about what life might be like in private practice, for example. And private practice is more, say, a, running a small business is what it is. I mean, you're really a consultant. People come to you of their own volition um, to seek advice for a problem they may or may not have. And we're consultants. I mean, in, in, we use, when you talk about being a consultant to a medical student, they just think it's someone who's done their fellowship training. But the actual word is to be consulted. That's what it means. And the patients don't have to come and see you. There's probably 20 other people they could see. But they're coming to see you for a reason. And you're providing advice to them. And you're doing that in, in a way where you're managing a small business, you're paying for staff, you're paying your rent, you've got overheads, um, you've got bills to pay. It, it really is a different experience to being a hospital-based doctor where the hospital employs you to do a job. Now, there are risks and benefits to both, of course. And what you want to do when you're a medical student is you want to get a rough idea about what might happen if you did private practice and there are some jobs where you have where or some some specialties sorry where they have a higher propensity to be a 
private practitioner and there are others where it's very hard to do, be a private practitioner. So say if you worked in an emergency department, that's going to be a hospital-based job. Or if you worked in an intensive care department, that's going to be as part of a hospital, usually a hospital that has higher acuity. Whereas if you were, say, a psychiatrist, um, you, there are some psychiatrists who would maybe only ever work in private practice. Yeah, and there is a and and that might you know there are obviously psychiatrists or dermatologists who also work solely in public hospitals. So, but there are there are leanings each specialty. So, being in private practice of affords you the autonomy to be able to practice medicine the way you see fit. And that is an enormous responsibility as well, because there's having having discussions with your colleagues, say in a public hospital, um, that that may be a different experience to being a private practitioner, say out in the suburbs by yourself, um, not really seeing anyone else in your profession, um, not talking about difficult cases, that might be a completely different experience to being a hospital-based practitioner. So it is worth um, your audience thinking about how that would actually work um, for them and even talking to people. Say, look, like, what's your life actually like? You know, what are the risks and benefits of being in private practice? And I'm happy to talk about that, including the financial aspects of it and the autonomy and how you have to probably, how you have to have more um, sort of self-oversight and self-regulation to work in private practice. Yeah. I mean, you let your patients tell you what's going on as well. Um, I asked them, you know, can I do a better job? You know, did, did was that information communicated in a way that you thought, oh, I understand what yeah. I'm going? Like, I do ask my private patients how I can do a better job. After all the years of training, um, one would think that you're ready to face any challenge, but it's not until you step into those shoes and are paying those overheads and talking to those patients out in the country that you realise you don't know all you the answers. You don't know. You don't know. And you're judged by your patients which is a good thing because they're the ones who are consulting you. So undeniably, it also poses a increased workload for you. Yep. And so I was wondering at this stage, how do you feel your priorities have changed, if at all, as you progress from working, from training in those public hospitals to working in private, especially with you know raising a family at the same time and your full-time load? What do you think matters to you these days? Sure. Look, I have a combination of things that matter, that are really important to me. I do like the autonomy of working in private practice. Like, I like being in charge of what I'm doing with my life. I like being able to practice obstetrics in a, in a way that I've been trained to practice it. And I like being able to have the choice to give my patients the time or the energy that I think that they need. That, that aspect of it, of private practice, is important to me. Now, the downside is that, you know, you're on call 24-7. You know, if your phone rings you've, and it's one of your patients, you have to sort them out. You have to go and see them. Now, you can share private practice. You can say, look, um, and I might say to a pregnant patient, look, um, you may see my colleague next week. Um, I've got an engagement I need to get to or... Um, I'm working at a public hospital and can you catch up with one of my colleagues? And most of them are very understanding. And I say, uh, sometimes uh, it's one of my children's birthdays, I'm gonna be off on Saturday. Um, if something was to happen on Saturday, then um, so-and-so is gonna be looking after you. And people do understand that. So it's not 24 seven, 365 days a year, but it is a significant proportion of that. 
Um, there is some financial benefit in doing private practice as well in that you if you work really hard you can you can you can earn a higher income um, that is true um, particularly in obstetrics but the reason I like public as well is I really like medical students and I like I like my colleagues and I like more difficult cases and I like contributing to the health outcomes of patients who don't have private health insurance or couldn't afford to see me otherwise and I think that the more doctors the more good doctors who contribute to that system the better society functions I don't want to live in a medical world where only people who have money can come and see me I think that's terrible Um, We have to live in a society where we care for people who need to be cared for. And the best way to do that is to ask doctors to give up some of their time or maybe some of their income to contribute to a system that helps care for everyone. Because if you have a narrow social gradient, particularly in health, um, if the health outcomes of the people at the top are not that significant from the people at the bottom, I think society will work better. I don't want to. I don't want to work or live in a society where people can't afford healthcare or access to healthcare. And the only way to do that is to help public hospitals be efficient, to retain staff, to provide good service that can be audited, um, to have collegiate relationships with yeah. your colleagues, and that we're all on the same page. And the same page is we're here to serve the public. I think everyone who's listening to this today is very lucky to be hearing this not just from someone who has those aspirations but who is practicing it at the moment that's right and you don't have to give up every you don't have to work for free knee deep as my colleague as my senior consultant told me when i was a medical student you don't have to work knee deep in yak shit to be a good person right and i remember him saying that because what he was really telling me he was really saying that you can give up some of your time and you can give up as much time as you want, but you can also make a living. You can also have a life. You can also pay your kids school fees because the truth is that a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast went to private schools and somebody paid for that, their parents, and their parents worked hard for it. And medicine's no different, right? Yeah. But you don't have to be all or nothing. You don't have to be knee deep in yak shit but you also don't have to do everything you can to maximize your income and never give back to people who otherwise couldn't afford to come and see you. And there is a great balance and the more people that contribute to the balance, the better society will be, the better the health outcomes will be. And so we do have a last couple of questions because time does fly. Could you tell us about someone who's had a significant influence on your career? What did you learn from them? Look, that's a hard question because I've taken bits and pieces from various people in my life. And there are people who, particularly in obstetrics, who um, had an enormous capacity to work, um, to deliver a lot of babies, to make the health outcomes for women and their babies better. And I looked at the way that they worked and I look at some of the technical aspects of their life and I try to take that from them. And then there'd be another group who you'd look at it and say, look, well, that person seems to have their work-life balance sorted out. And you think, well, how do I get a bit more of that? 
And you wander through, you meander through life as a medical student and you're just picking up little bits and pieces and you guys call them pearls or something. Um, but you, it, it is true that you do that. And I'm loath to mention one or two people who had a significant impact because they themselves were not the perfect outcome that I desired. They just had aspects of their personality that I really admired. And then when I think oh, I should put my academic hat on, I try and channel that person. Or at three o'clock in the morning, when I'm stuck with a baby that's distressed and sick and a woman who's in pain and a baby that needs to be delivered, I know I need to take another person's view, not the academic's view, but maybe one of my other colleagues who I know and I hear their little voice in my head about what to do when. And then I take that and then I listen to my parents a bit and then I listen to my grandparents and then I listen to my five-year-old son about when the time to come home is. So it's not... It's not one person. I, I never, you never want to be the sort of person that just looks up to one person and that you want to mimic everything about their life because you've got to be yourself. And thank God we're not all clones. <laughs> and um, to wrap up this discussion that we've been having so far, what's a lesson that you wish you had learned earlier in your career that serves you quite well now? Look, I, I wish I had been a bit more forgiving of myself. Um, I think a lot of medical students have this problem is that they're very hard on themselves and the expectations that they have on themselves um, can be detrimental because taking a more humane long-term view of your of your own life can actually help you become a better doctor and I think that as you go through uh, your stages of medical student uh, intern resident you don't want to be ideological about what you're going to become. You want to give yourself an opportunity to be the best doctor that you can be, but you don't want to be too fixed so that if you meet a bump in the road that the wheels don't fall off, you know? Like, I do think that that if someone just had to tap me on the shoulder, maybe when I was an intern, said, look, Hayden, it's all going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Just keep going. You, you, there'll be bumps on the road, sure. There is for everyone. But... But having the ability to actually see that when you're, when you're in the thick of it, um, when you're in the trenches, is hard. And it is worth acknowledging that because when you look overall at medical students' lives and then being a doctor, like it is an enormous privilege and most people have a fantastic life. I mean, you've pretty much got guaranteed employment. You can make a good living even in knee-deep in yak shit. Like you can... You, it's really up to you what you want to do. And there are times where you just need to think, look, it'll all be fine in the end. Because yeah. no matter where people end up, like the quality of life and the privilege it is to be a doctor's high. And you t of all your problems, you'd take your lot for sure. You know, like, will I be a cardiothoracic surgeon or orthopedic surgeon? I mean, come on, you know, like some people have got serious problems and that's not one of them. And so you were telling us how you wanted someone to tell you that as a medical student. Well, after today, people have your voice ringing in their ears, reminding them that it's okay. It's a bump in the road and they can keep going. People do keep going and you just need to ask a few people. Now, the hard thing is getting people to talk honestly about their own experience. And people, some clinicians see it as like a threat to their personal integrity if they reveal a few moral failings in their life. And... That's tragic, I think, because 
the student population is more forgiving than people think. And you, you can acknowledge people for their great medical prowess, even if they've got a few personal failings, sure. But you can also acknowledge people's great personality, even if they're not the best doctor. Because you still go back to the thing I said before, in that the main aim of the game is to serve the population and to serve them well and to improve health outcomes. And that comes from different people at different times. Amazing message we're hearing from you, Hayden. So we are at the end of our conversation for today. I'd like to, on behalf of our team, thank you a lot for your contribution. I mean, just listening to you makes us realize how busy you are and hence how fortunate we have been to hear all of these things from you. Um, Is there anything else you'd like to leave our uh, our listeners with? No problem. Look, it's been a privilege. Thanks for having me. If there's questions about ONG or life in general and people wanted to contact me, I really don't mind being contacted. Um, I have a pretty ordinary website that you can go to. Um, It's currently trying to be updated. Um, I did ask a patient what I could do better and she told me my website was terrible, so I took that on board. Um, But there's an email address there, so you you can email me or you can just come and talk to me. Yeah, amazing. And the website being Hayden Waterer. Yeah, just put my name in the Google machine. Um, There's not many of us. In fact, there's only one of me. So um, (laughs) I'm sure you'll find me. I'm not on social media. Um, We didn't talk about that. Uh, I I don't see social media as a huge strong suit in the world at the moment. Um, So I'm not on Twitter. I've never been. I'm not on Facebook or Instagram. Um, So you can send me an email or you can just ring me and I'll talk to you. Yeah, good old-fashioned Just, Just ring up. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, good luck in your own endeavours, Hayden. No worries. Until next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed the episode. We'd love to hear what you think, so leave us your comments and questions on our Facebook and Twitter pages, at TTO Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to receive your regular dose of the timer. We'd like to thank our sponsors, the Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their continual support. This episode was brought to you by Ganisht, Aidan, Chloe and Noreen, and we'll see you next time.